You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Happy Monday, everybody. Spain and Fitz together again. All week, we think. You never really know. You never really know when an open slot will pull Fitz away. But I'm hoping that we're going to be together all week here for Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Uh, be sure to download the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can catch all the stuff you might have missed. Fitz, you should probably do that, too, so you can catch up on the show when you're not around. I hear the show's been really good yeah. without me. That's Crush it, it you on know, Friday. So far, yeah. uh, so far, so good. Yeah, Friday. Did you have a good show Friday? Was everything good? I did. Good? Yeah, I did. Okay, yeah, good, two, good. two hours solo, lots of great guests, good content. Good, 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 yeah. good. Yeah. Sent it home you know, with a great story of ham falling from the sky. You know, ham? just the usual. Uh-huh. Piece of ham fell from the sky on me. I blame a squirrel or a bird. But do you remember? Uh, I, I know we have to actually get to sports, but do you remember Iron Chef? Like, if, did you ever watch that? Like, where the, they reveal the secret ingredient? You know, mm-hmm. there was yeah. one episode where the guy turned around and the secret ingredient. He said ham, and he said it that way. So every time I hear ham, <laughs> that's all I think about is ham. There you go. Uh, I thought instead of the Kentucky meat shower because it was my own personal <laughs> Chicago ham drizzle. It wasn't quite as alarming, but it was equally as surprising. If we uh, let's ever get start a band, talk. it's called the yeah. Chicago Ham Drizzle. Chicago that's ham just drizzle. fact. That's yeah. fact. Okay, go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I think we could incorporate it into our sports vernacular. Both the Kentucky Meat Shower when a team's you know raining threes, and the Chicago Ham Drizzle is more of a you know uh, not being able to secure from the perimeter. Uh, let's get into sports. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Uh, Man, Fitz, it's really hard to keep up with the COVID news around the Olympics. And you're seeing simultaneously stories about Tokyo's efforts to ready itself for the arrival of folks, the the varying decisions being made sort of last minute about fans not being allowed. And what about nursing children, right? It felt like so rushed despite this entire games being delayed a whole year. And a lot of that is understandable, right? You are adjusting to constantly changing protocols, you know, viral numbers and everything else, but it still felt a little haphazard at the end here. And now as athletes are arriving in Japan, we are in the immediacy of the games already learning about issues. Zach Levine now in the health and safety protocol, hoping to be able to join the basketball team, hoping that it hasn't spread beyond Levine. We already saw Bradley Beal not be able to to go. Katie Lou Samuelson, part of our women's Olympic basketball three-on-three team, Uh, which is supposed to be fantastic, unable to compete. And that's a really hard one. She's been injured a bunch in her career, got traded a lot. This was a huge moment for her. She's not able to compete. Coco Goff out of the tennis tournament because of a positive test. And Fitz, as far as we know, these folks are vaccinated. And I'm trying to figure out if it is less rare for there to be breakthrough cases, even if symptoms are light, Or if it's just we're only really hearing about it in sports because they're getting tested every single day. And maybe others of us who are vaccinated have these breakthrough cases. We don't know. We're not sick. We don't have any symptoms. We can't pass it on. But we just aren't getting tested every day to find out. Yeah, I think the testing has to be part of this conversation. But it feels like as we get closer and closer to the finish line, it's like a runner that's lost all their legs and they're just rolling. And you're just hoping that they get to that finish line at all. That's where it feels like we've gotten to with the Olympics. And this is something, you know, frankly, you and I have talked about for months that nothing could be certain in this year's Olympics. And we really felt like COVID, especially because of the global ramifications of the virus, not just the American portion of it, but the global portion of it was going to make it really hard to, to figure out how all of these nations from all over the world are going to come together. And now as we see getting this close to it, I'm left wondering if we're really watching 
sort of a super spreader possibility type event. Like we, we just don't know at this point. And you're absolutely right. They're getting tested and most of us aren't. And maybe for many of them, it's not a big deal. But what we know is that at this point, because everybody's being tested, it's going to change daily what athletes are available, what athletes aren't available. And we have no idea what the long-term global impact of, the, of any of this will be. And I imagine it is tougher. I know, like, for instance, we heard specifically on the gymnastics side, there are two alternates for gymnastics that are in health and safety protocol. Um, we know that they brought those Olympians out in the occasion that you might have to scrap the entire squad and bring in another one. I don't know what the case is for other sports, how many alternates are available. It seems like it'd be trickier this time around because you're not flying extemporaneous people. Like, this is this is it, right? And so um, I'm I'm very curious to see... If there are more names coming out soon, if this initial blow is going to make it so that people are even more careful than before. It's Spain and Fitz, by the way. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio were presented by Progressive Insurance. You know, Fitz, I've been reading up a lot as, um, you know, doubly vaccinated myself, have been for several months. But with the Delta variant, I've been trying to educate myself. The good news is for these vaccinated people, symptoms are almost university almost universally, relatively minor, right? You you barely know you have it. You heal very quickly. You test negative very quickly. So for those that might be able to return, that's a good sign. They don't believe you're able to pass it on. Your viral load is so low because you're vaccinated that you're not going to spread it, which is good news in terms of teammates and other people at the games. You are also, um, you know, not likely to have long hauler symptoms. Again, partly because of the viral load and it is a small sample size and that people haven't been vaccinated for as long. But that usual window of when we start to see people suffering from long hauler has already occurred for many people who have been vaccinated and gotten it. And it doesn't seem like that's an issue. And that's one of the scariest ones to me. Of course, the initial effects of COVID and we've seen some very serious symptoms and deaths because of it, but also that feeling of could I for the rest of my life not taste or smell or be you know, um, wheelchair bound or not be able to participate in sports or, or activities or walk up the stairs. Those are any number of things that we found, um, massive heart issues, et cetera. Those things not being an issue for vaccinated people make these diagnoses a little less scary, but it doesn't make the timing any better. And it doesn't make me any less concerned about what are the protocols in Tokyo for even vaccinated people to be fully masked, distanced, et cetera, that we were following a lot more closely before. Well, I guess so educate me because I don't know the answer to this. If if vaccinated people aren't suffering those long term ramifications and they can't spread it, then why are they not allowed to travel at that point? Like, because if you know that somebody has it, but it's not going to hurt them and they can't hurt anybody else. Why are they limited in going? I think the issue is like with everything else in covid, we don't know for sure. Right. I mean, it took us a while to understand that it was predominantly passed through breathing and 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 you know, spittle and not through the groceries that you bought. It took us a long time to figure out how much more difficult it was to spread outdoors instead of indoors. Like the 15 minutes that was expected for the previous variants in order for enough of the viral load to infect you. Like all of those things we learned over a long course of time. So that's what we think about the vaccinated folks. And that's what the numbers are spelling out. If you look, 99% of hospitalized cases of COVID right now in most areas are unvaccinated people. And the majority of people suffering serious symptoms or dying are vaccinated by immense numbers. So, you know, we know that right now the vaccine seems to be doing its job and all this other stuff and it's preventing you from. But what if what if they're wrong or what if there's some sort of variant that manages to elude 
and now you've now you've let these people roam freely, understanding that they are still carrying a virus. So I think it's and probably that's a really, that, yeah, that's a really smart point, by the way. And and I ask because I I think what we should all be doing is asking and learning from people smarter than we are. You are definitely smarter, especially on this <laughs> stuff, than I am. So no, I, I think this is I, it's, it's a good thing for all of us to keep in mind, and it's going to impact Sarah the way that we watch all of these Olympics, right? Like at the end of the day, it's got to be in the back of everybody's mind. Availability is going mm-hmm. to be a key in when when it comes to the Olympic conversation. Yeah, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, and I just want to point out again if you're if you're if you don't know some of the stuff about vaccinations and how it's reacting to the new variants, Google it. Find reputable journalistic sources. Um, it's useful for you. It's useful for people that you know. And this is what we've said about the vaccinations from the very beginning and why it's so important to get vaccinated, because the longer that the COVID virus has to bounce around between unvaccinated people, the more likely it is to continue mutating into these different strains. The Delta variant, we already know, has a thousand times higher viral load, is much faster and easier to get. And doctors, some doctors are now saying you're either vaccinated or you're going to get it like at this point, because that's how easy it is to spread. So educating yourself on why it's necessary for all of us to get vaccinated and to be able to stop the virus from finding a body to jump to. Please go out and educate yourself. Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. We want to ask you, too. We're going to put the poll up at Spain and Fitz. How are you watching these Olympics? Is it affecting you? The health stuff, is that making you not want to watch? What about the time zones? Are you going to DVR and watch later? Are you going to watch them live? We'll put that poll up at Spain and Fitz. Coming up, we're going to get to the NBA Finals and how the Suns can force the best two words in sports. It's next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Fitz, one of the things that's changed for me in terms of the way I talk about the people involved in this is adjustments. You know I was tough on Coach Bud, and for good reason. There was a lot of what felt like sticking to the plan, even when the plan wasn't working. And what we've seen and said is a team that's willing to gamble both in the offseason, right, giving out those five first-round picks and a nine-figure contract extension uh, for Giannis and to get those players to support Giannis, and, and and to keep them around, those plays that they're making are, are risk-taking, like a alley-oop dunk in the waning seconds of a game for the win instead of setting it up and pulling back and killing time. So I'm thinking of them as a much riskier team than I ever thought before. And in terms of adjustments, the difference in the way they're playing the Suns, taking away the perimeter, taking away drive-in kicks, shutting down the pick-and-roll, making it so that Chris Paul just isn't running the offense and moving the ball around – it's a completely different series after those first two games. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think Budenholzer deserves a tip of the cap, which is tough for a lot of us to do because I think everybody's been rightfully so very hard on him. Now, at some point, you've got a system you believe in as a coach and you've got arguably the best player in the entire playoffs and realistically in this series in Giannis. So I understand a little bit of stubbornness from a coaching staff and saying, hey, we know what we do and we know how to make that work. But it feels like Budenholzer, especially defensively, once they found the matchup and where to put Drew Holiday and how to make him shadow Chris Paul full court, this whole series changed. And what's been surprising to me is that Monty Williams, who has been such an incredible coach and is such a great coach, really hasn't had any counter for that. It's like at some point, I feel like the Bucks sort of figured out the Rubik's Cube, and now they're that kid that can sit there, and in 10 seconds, they've got all the color matching. And realistically, Phoenix on the other side keeps looking at it and saying, I don't, I don't know the counter move. There isn't. This is two teams playing chess, and one team has been much better than the other in that sense. And I'm surprised that the Suns haven't been able to find any way to adjust around what Milwaukee has done. 
I agree with you. I do have to wonder whether Monty Williams is saying and doing the right things and unfortunately doesn't have the personnel. And one of that one of the reasons being that as great as Chris Paul is and as smart as he is, the floor general kind of guy, is his body letting him down? We we've been hearing not as much as you would expect about the variety of injuries, including that bone on bone knee situation that he's got. And you just have to wonder if it's finally taken its hold between the bubble last year and then now the length of this postseason. He just doesn't look nearly as effective. Monty Williams uh, spoke, and you can hear the full interview tomorrow on the NBA on ESPN Radio coverage starting at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, here's a little bit of what Monty Williams had to say, and it was about that ball movement. We had seven possessions in a row where we didn't have a pass. That's not who we've been. When we move the ball, when we go paint the great, when we touch the paint, our efficiency is through the roof. That's who we've been. That's what we've shown our guys. Uh, they understand it. Moving the ball from one side to the other, it, it almost it doesn't double our efficiency, but it goes up. And, and that's a point of focus for us as we go into this game six. And I think if you remember, and I'm, I don't have these numbers in front of me, but game two of the series, they hit something like 20 corner threes. And then by game four, they attempted four of them or something. Like they're, the Bucks' ability thus far to get them out of the game plan that they operate best in, like I mentioned, the drive and kicks that they depend on because they're so guard heavy. And this is something we talked about earlier too, Fitz. They are guard heavy. And we were wondering, why can't the Bucks use their length and size? And now they are. And the biggest difference for me is Holiday just shutting down Chris Paul and making his life miserable. And we saw him offensively take off in Game 4, but more importantly than that, Game 5, I'm sorry, but more importantly than that is just completely taking them out of their rhythm and deciding that that was going to be Holiday's job and that was going to be the focus seems to be the biggest difference. Yeah, and, and look, I'm the first to say that I was really wrong in this series about Drew Holiday. I mean, I and you know I've been such a Bucks supporter, but Drew Holiday has been maddeningly consistent, inconsistent, I should say, throughout the playoffs. And that hasn't been the case on the defensive side of the ball since they got everything righted, particularly Drew Holiday has been just, a, a, it's a delight to watch him play, frankly. Mm-hmm. Like his, his speed and ability to just stay glued to the hip is incredible. And I don't know that we've really seen that in other series because we haven't had to see that. But it's like they looked at it and said, this is the one thing. We're going to need Drew Holiday to be great at one thing. We're going to need Chris Middleton to be great at one thing, getting offensive production. We're going to need Giannis to be great at one thing, clog up the middle, go in and and be the force, to use what Monty Williams was telling DeAndre Ayton to, to do, play with force. Like We've seen each of those three players from Milwaukee particularly understand exactly what their role is in this series and once they did that and everybody played within that space they look unbeatable because to your point earlier they are a better team I think they're more talented than Phoenix they've just figured out finally how to maximize that and Phoenix can't counter without different players you know there's just nothing they can do Spain and Fitz Sarah Spain Jason Fitz on ESPN radio yeah DeAndre Ayton seems to depend very much on Chris Paul to get his. And so if you shut down Chris Paul, if you shut down the pick and roll, Ayton is not able to assert himself as a physical presence, particularly because look who he's going up against in Lopez and Giannis. So you get rid of Ayton's effectiveness. You shut down Chris Paul's ability to move the ball. And then they depend on Booker, who has been fantastic. But they're like, hey, go get yours. Get your 40. Get your 40 plus, and we'll be okay with that if the rest of your offense is stagnant because of the way we're shutting down your rhythm. And they've also been the opposite of what we've seen from from Milwaukee in the past where we felt like they've shut down under pressure. They watched Phoenix make 11 straight shots and take a 16-point lead in the first quarter of that Game 5 at home in Phoenix. And instead of shutting down, they battled back and they won that game. 
this is changing everything we've said about this Bucks team and their coach. I will not change one thing about the coach, though, and that's this guy cannot give us any sound. Just zero. And I will say <laughs> that of all the times that I have heard Coach Bud say absolutely nothing, this was the most impressive because he said nothing in another sport. Yeah, no, I mean, it's all the competitive, you know, situations, the boards, the, you know, getting back in transition, communicating, uh, you know, getting to 50-50 balls, screening, you know, it's, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, people, it's blocking and tackling in football and whatever that version of basketball is, you know, we, we got to do all the fundamental things and you got to compete at a high level um, to win. Yeah, he ran out of basketball cliches and he was like, let me throw in some football cliches that we need to do better. Just <laughs> unbelievable. You can hear the full interview tomorrow. I don't know why you'd want to, but you can hear the full interview with Coach Budenholzer tomorrow on the NBA and ESPN radio coverage at 8 p.m. Eastern. Again, though, to give him his shine, the adjustments that they've made have been incredible. And the conversation we've been having about Giannis and the things he can't do, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're four from 11 or whatever from the free throw stripe, if you're doing everything else incredibly. What we talked about with Holiday, he made or assisted 27 in Milwaukee's 43 points in the second quarter. He figured out what he needed to be offensively aggressive, and he was defensively a shutdown guy once again. It's been really cool to see Milwaukee step into this moment. Yeah, when you call a player one-dimensional, but that one dimension beats everything that you try and throw at him at some point, <laughs> does it matter that they're one-dimensional? Because that's the world not, Giannis not lives really. in right now. <laughs> it's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. Dave McMenamin is going to join us next, talk about some of the things the Suns might be able to do to counteract these Bucks adjustments. Do they have enough to force a Game 7 with a win tomorrow night? It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, represented by Progressive Insurance. All right, we need to get some expertise. Uh, we were just talking about the Bucks and the Suns. They hit into Game 6, which you can listen to here on ESPN Radio tomorrow night uh, after Spain and Fitz, of course. You'll get a shortened Spain and Fitz. It will take you straight into that tomorrow. But let's get some insight on it right now from the Goodyear Hotline. We're joined by ESPN NBA reporter Dave McMiniman. Dave, man, always appreciate the time. I mean, sort of look back on what we saw in Phoenix and uh, try and figure out what did Milwaukee do differently in that game that worked so well for them? Well, really what we saw for the first time all series, Jason, was Giannis, Drew Holiday, and Chris Middleton all being at the top of their offensive game at the same time. Now, defensively, I'm sure but Mike Budenholzer is like, hey, we're giving up 119 points. That's not who we're about or what we're about, I should say, but the fact that they had 88 points combined from their big three carried the day. They shot 50% from three as a team. They hit 14 from the outside, and you know they withstood the initial push from Phoenix. Phoenix is up 16 points in the first quarter. The Bucks completely control the second and third quarters, and if not for a three-minute run by the Suns late in the fourth, it would have been a blowout. And certainly uh, the Bucks. Add a really strong formula, and they want to take that formula and add in the home court advantage and be lifting up the Larry O'Brien trophy tomorrow night. Dave, I hate these questions, and I'm going to ask you it anyway, so my apologies in advance. But if you had to assign a percentage of Chris Paul's maybe lack of effectiveness or the way the offense hasn't been able to be run through him the same way we saw in the first couple games and earlier in the postseason – is the, is the higher percentage number to Chris Paul perhaps being injured or tired or fatigued or not effective, or is it simply that Holiday is that great of a defender to disrupt their entire offense? Hmm. 
Yeah, I hear you on this one. I mean, Holiday's been fantastic uh, defensively and has spent some time on Chris Paul, but a lot of time on Devin Booker, um, some time uh, because of his size on, on Jay Crowder. Uh, I think Chris Paul, because he has the point God nickname and he was so good in games one and two, the lens that his last three games has been looked through has been pretty harsh. Yeah. Of course, the Suns lost all three, so the criticism makes sense to some degree, but game five, he has 21 points, 11 assists, just one turnover, shoots nine for 15 from the floor, and has the bucket to bring them within one uh, with about a minute to go, and this bump by Pac Anson on the play easily could have been an and one that led to a game-tying free throw. And so you know, I, I think Chris Paul is doing his job well this series. He did have a terrible game four, uh, really costly turnovers, and went – five for 13 from the field. If you remove that one, uh, I think he's had a pretty good series. Dave, do you have a sense of how healthy his hand really is? Not really, but again, I mean, it's healthy enough to put up 21 and 11 with one turnover in a must-win game. (laughs) So to me, it's fine. Yeah, and the knee and everything else. I mean, it's tough to say what's going on inside that, that body. It's just, it was so dazzling for such a stretch, and now it does feel like, um, and I guess that brings me to my next question, which is we were just talking about the adjustments. You know, there was so much consternation about Coach Bud being uh, t- too unwilling to adjust. And it feels like what we've seen from the Bucks after the first two games to now the last three is an incredible willingness to adjust and change their approach. And that has effectively changed the Suns to the point where it's just the Devin Booker show and they're going to let him get his and then beat them. Yeah, similar to the defensive tactics they employed against the Nets, where it was, okay, Katie's going to get his, but we're going to make sure we stay home on the others. And what it's really done to the Suns' offense is limited their offensive looks from the outside. And they're a really good shooting team. They shot 61% from three last game, but they just didn't get enough attempts. I think they only had 18 attempts. This is a Suns team that earlier rounds had some games where they shot 40 threes from the outside. And so, you know, it's kind of uh, not – necessarily exactly the same as a box and one, but the same defensive concept where you play one guy one-on-one and then you just stay home on the shooters. Right. We're talking to ESPN NBA reporter Dave McMiniman. So uh, much has been made in Milwaukee of the crowd and the energy and all of those things. And Phoenix didn't necessarily handle it incredibly well the two games before. What do they have to do differently this time? I mean, they, they got to finish. So in game four, they led for 38 of the first 44 minutes of the game. In the final four minutes, they're outscored 17 to eight. Like that could have been a win. In game five, they come all the way back with that 12 to three spurt from the three and a half minute mark to about the 30 second mark. Devin Booker with a head of steam comes into the foul line without having a plan of what he wants to do. And then we all know what happened there. Drew Holiday steal. Drew Holiday pushes up the ball. alley with the Giannis Antetokounmpo, and, and now the Bucks are one win away. And so it, they just got to finish. And talking to Monty Williams and Chris Paul and Devin Booker in the press conferences today, the thing that stood out to me was Williams saying, when we got on the plane flying out here, the look on the faces in the eyes of my guys was, the look of a team that's still engaged and they believe they can win this. And then he said that feeling was fortified at their Monday morning breakfast meeting where he scanned the room and he saw all these conversations occurring 
uh, at, at the different tables in the hotel ballroom. And he was like, this is a team that is engaged and still in it. And you know, that they're going to need that uh, because if, if they don't have that, then Milwaukee goes up to an early lead and then there's no fight to push back at that point. Uh, and as we've seen in this series, it has been a game of runs between these two teams. And so, you know, they, they may not only come back from down three to three, two, they may have to come down from 16, like the Bucks did in game five. Uh, but, you know, at least if they believe they can do it, it'll give them a chance. Dave McMenamin is with us here on Spain and Fitz, our ESPN NBA reporter. Reminder that game six of the NBA Finals is tomorrow night, 8 Eastern, right here on ESPN Radio, 8.30 Eastern on ABC Television. To your point about finishing, that game five that they lost, they shot 55% from the floor, 68% from three-point range, and 91% from the foul line, and they still lost. But during that game, they had a season-low 19 three-point attempts and only 11 free throws. It's hard to remember back to that first game but they set a record of, what, 26 of 26 free throws uh, in that game. They just have gotten those taken away. So how does Phoenix force the Bucks to allow them to get back to perimeter shots, to get back to foul shots, and be able to hit those pull-up Js again? Yeah, so the perimeter shot's going to be harder. It's about swinging the ball from side to side. That, that takes a lot of execution because once you start making more complicated passes that can lead to turnovers, they had those 17 turnovers obviously in game four and that did them in uh, the free throws. They're not really a team that is built around driving. You have Devin Booker, great mid range jump shooter, Mikael Bridges, mid range jump shooter, Chris Paul, mid range jump shooter. I mean, certainly uh, someone like Deandre Ayton uh, is playing around the rim, but a lot of times it's, it's an alley-oop dunk or it's a putback, it's not necessarily a pump fake, try to draw the contact and go up. Uh, You know, the the guys I'd look to if they want to live at the line, Booker certainly has that driving ability. Uh, And then, you know, Jay Crowder, a type of guy who can mix it up and and, kind of use what the junk in his game to get some free throws. And obviously that does so many things for your team. It gets the other team into their bench and you can exploit different matchups, of course. Uh, beyond that, you know, I think their best style of ball is playing with pace, playing where they get more possessions. And that can lead to open looks because you have as great of a defensive team this Bucks team is, and they certainly are, any team when they're scrambling or when it's a three-on-two or a two-on-one, you're going to be giving up something. And and the Suns have the type of players who can hit from the perimeter uh, when, when they have the ball uh, in rhythm with a good look. And so you know, they're going to try to speed things up, uh, but while also taking care of the basketball. And that's kind of the double-edged sword that they're going to have to try to manage. David, there's one thing I know Milwaukee is going to be absolutely insane, and the bar scene there is already great. Just if, if they win the championship, just stay out of the crazies with the Deer District. Just be safe, my friend. That's all we ask for you. Get try yourself and be safe. a butter burger. Oh, Chill out. Get your, a lot of cheap beer. Yeah, like, just, just try to get curds. through this thing without, uh, you know, uh, having to be in quarantine for a week. Or yeah, so. don't put yourself so, in the middle of the deer district. Part. Whatever you do, that seems a little dicey. <laughs> Just be safe, man. We appreciate your insight, Dave. Thanks as always for hanging out with us. Yep, you got it. That's Dave McMiniman, ESPN NBA reporter, brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. All right, the road ahead for NFL fans leads to training camp. 
which is underway this week for three different teams. We'll tell you who and what to expect next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 8. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. And look, this is usually one of the most exciting times of the year for me. I'm not going to lie about it, Sarah. My excitement for football as we get into training camp heightens every year because this is the ultimate time of hope. Like you feel like your team has really turned a corner right now and you don't even have preseason games yet to make you start questioning everything. Nonetheless, regular season. So like this is usually my time. This year feels a little different because it's not just about getting into training camp. It's about COVID and how each team has handled it because there are real ramifications for teams that haven't hit the threshold. So this week, there are three teams that are breaking camp now. We've got, or starting camp now, I should say. We've got the Buccaneers, the Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Dallas Cowboys that are all uh, reporting. And as they report, uh, there have been multiple reports out about Michael Irvin being one famous Cowboy speaking out about how upset he is that the Cowboys haven't reached the 85% COVID-19 vaccine threshold ahead of training camp. Because they haven't reached that threshold, there are real ramifications to the locker room, to the way that they're allowed to prep, to what they're allowed to do, to how many people are allowed in the weight room at one time. All things that will give some sort of competitive disadvantage to the Cowboys because they've chosen not That at this point has real ramifications to how they prepare for their season. Yeah, and I think, as I mentioned earlier, and I'm not a doctor or an expert, I just make sure that I only listen to those who are. And the reason for this, and again, we're still learning, but right now, all evidence points to vaccinated people not being able to spread the disease because their viral loads are too low. So that will allow fewer tests for vaccinated players, because if they were to be infected and a couple days pass, they wouldn't be spreading it. Um, and that the unvaccinated would continue to have to follow stricter protocols, testing every day, et cetera. It makes sense, right? Um, that's a decision made by the experts telling you um, the best way to, to move forward um, based on the facts that they have right now. Knowing that there are as many players left in the NFL that haven't gotten vaccinated, knowing that, I think we just heard in the update, something like six out of the 40 teams or something is vaccinated, uh, you know, with that 85% threshold, is so disappointing because we heard so much last year about the anxiety caused by not you know, knowing whether the safety protocols that they were using would work well enough. We heard and saw plenty of teams gravely affected by not having availability of entire positions, right? I'm trying to remember which team it was that didn't have like a tight end or whatever it was. I, and there's a really easy way to fix that. Follow what the experts and and people who have spent their entire lives studying these things are telling you to do. And I, I don't know what to say about the, the players that refuse. I, I, I happen to know a coach who I was just talking to who said, you know, he ended up sitting and making 40 straight phone calls to players on his team. He's an assistant coach somewhere and individually talking to each of the players about what's your reasoning for not getting it and how do we get you there and what do you need to know about it and who can we bring in to talk to you? And that's probably going to be what's happening over the coming weeks. Yeah, and, and this is something, you know, I always stress, and I'm such a, uh, I feel like I'm a blowhard on this every single time, but this is something that was negotiated, and it's important. Like, I've, I've gone back and found the article from NFL.com that points out that the NFL and the NFL Players Association together came to an agreement for COVID-19 protocols for training camps, preseason games, how everything will be handled. So every single requirement here that has been that is being made of individual players 
was collectively bargained. It was negotiated through their union. So the players had a voice in this. And the differences are staggering for anybody that doesn't know. For example, if your team has hit the threshold, there's no capacity limits in weight rooms. If they haven't hit the threshold, only 15 players can be in the weight room at any one time. For any players that aren't uh, vaccinated, for example, they're not allowed to go to anything, basically. They can't, just like last year, they can't go to concerts, nightclubs, bars, house parties, charity events. They can't do anything outside of the the workflow uh, that's allowed. But if you've been vaccinated, you can. So you've created all of these situations where suddenly... You're going to have to ask teams within themselves, hey, have you been vaccinated? Can you be at this event? Are you allowed to be here? Somebody's going to have to be policing all of it. And for every single time that there's a violation, it can cost the player and the team money and even possibly draft picks. So all of this goes back to the fact that the players had the option to sit down as a group and say, hey, we want to fight for something. And they didn't. So whatever they have to deal with now is of their own doing. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. I hadn't really thought about this element in terms of hard knocks, but I imagine Michael Irvin in particular, not that he's one to bite his tongue normally, but might be speaking out specifically about the Cowboys because it's going to come out during hard knocks. There's going to be probably some pretty clear conversation showing you who's vaccinated and who's not. It's going to make the team's job a lot more difficult as they get ready for the season. And it's not going to be something that can be sort of hidden for a while like many of the other teams you're going to probably hear about the percentage and whether they hit the percentage needed for relaxed protocols. But it's going to be a lot harder, I think, for the Cowboys to hide who and who isn't. And it's going to be a big topic of discussion because you always know, Fitz, if you have names and specific examples, it's much easier for the media to cover than the broad swath of haven't hit the number yet. Oh, you are so right. And, you know, I just keep thinking about the, as you mentioned earlier, not not just the entire position groups, but close contact. And that's something we got really used to last year. Fully vaccinated individuals by NFL rule who've been exposed to a coronavirus positive person will not be labeled a high risk close contact if they're fully vaccinated. So they don't have the mandatory five day isolation mm-hmm. if they haven't been vaccinated. They do. And it's that simple. So if your favorite team starting quarterback has not been vaccinated, whether you like it or not, or anybody likes it or not, uh, if they haven't been vaccinated, there is still going to be a five day isolation period. You, you are still going to look at teams that are missing an entire offensive line group right. because of close contact, which is something well, we dealt with last year. But at least everybody was dealing with it. Also, an interesting thing that we've seen in certain places around the country is proliferation of false vaccination passports, right? So if you're a player who wants to keep playing, who hasn't been vaccinated, who either wants to evade the rules or say test positive and wants to be available to play, are you willing to go far enough as to put other players at risk, knowing that you are someone who can spread it to staff, teammates, opponents, etc.? Are you willing to do that? Right. Because let's say you decide I'm just going to fake the vaccination passport so that I can be a part of this and not deal with this. Then you test positive. Are you going to are you going to tell them the truth? Are you going to keep I mean, this this entire covid for the last year plus has been an exercise in trust of our fellow man. And we have failed it over and over again. Does that change within the confines of a team, especially knowing that some of your teammates Mm. might have people in their lives that are high risk. I mean, remember, remember Justin Tucker last year at the, at the world series, screw your families. I want to be out on, I, I want to be out Justin Turner. I want to be out there on the field with the Dodgers after we win. I want to hug the trophy. 
I want to be near all of your friends and family and kids and wives and grandparents and everything because this is a big moment for me. How does that manifest itself? And then if you find out that someone was lying or if you find out that someone who's unvaccinated took out a whole bunch of other people and now your team is losing games because of that, like these conversations in the locker room are going to get heavy. Well, and that that harkens back to the entire spread in the NBA and and some of the uh, some of the locker room issues that that caused initially where, you know, people were flipping about it, right? And and you've got to also look at how fans are going to react. I mean, at some point, if a fan is looking at their favorite player and saying, hey, I'm not even going to insert a name. So, you know, player X is my, my favorite team's quarterback, and he chose not to get vaccinated. And now as a result, he spread it. And as a result, we're going into the playoffs for the first time in 15, 20 years, and we're going to be missing a bunch mm-hmm. of players. Like the the level of disdain and hate uh, that is going to be spread from diehards to, to people and through money. all of this is... Mon- I mean, the oh, amount no. of money in these sports that are going to be dependent on whether or not someone wants to listen to experts or do their own YouTube research is wild. Yeah, this is something that's not going away. And as every single team reports to camp, we need to keep an eye on these numbers, not to, because we're trying to get into anybody's personal business, but because fact fact is, it will impact this season and your favorite team. All right, up next, things are going to get hot, 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 hot with our next guest, Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Well, head over to the Goodyear Hotline. We're joined by Sean Evans, host extraordinaire. Uh, Look, Sean, I got to talk to you out of the gates because I watch your show all the time, right? And I'm all in on any opportunity to watch people have to eat anything super hot. But I can't handle spicy food. So what's the earliest like anybody's raised their hands and said, no, I completely can't eat any of these peppers you're putting in front of me? Well, infamously, DJ Khaled, who I think was like in our first season, he tapped out three wings in. So uh, for people who haven't watched the show, it's a 10-wing gauntlet. He tapped out on the third wing, which is miles and miles and miles, the worst performance we've ever had, but like also kind of the best, you know? Uh, so I've been waiting, I think, five or six years now for somebody to, to beat the Khaled line, which is three wings in. Well, and also a guy whose entire phrase is another one, and he didn't, in fact, have another one after the third do you like people who seem more scared? Because I saw you're having Olivia Rodrigo on. She said she thinks bell peppers are spicy. So I'm deeply concerned for that. Uh, or do you like when they come in all confident? Because you had someone like Chrissy Teigen who seemed very sure of herself and then ended up in the doctor's office with eyebrow twitches and a chafed tongue somehow. What do you like better? Like yeah. attacking the confident folks or the scared ones? Well, I, I think I, I think uh, as long as somebody wants to do it, that's my favorite thing. You know, somebody comes in and they're just like down to push themselves down for this thing and have a, at least somewhat of a of foundational knowledge of the show and know what they're getting themselves into and are just kind of down to see how it goes. That, that's kind of how I am in my personality. So that's what I like most in a guest. So Olivia Rodrigo was amazing because she's like, I think bell peppers are spicy, but there should be a lot of fun because of that. You know, I think everybody has kind of a unique vibe. And then I think the episode that we put out last week was David Harbour, who had no idea, hadn't watched the show. So everything took him by surprise, but because he has such a, just, he just enjoyed the experience and kind of fell into the magic of the show. So in that way, you know, I like that too. But overall, the thing that I look forward to most in a guest is just uh, a let's do this, uh, a let's do this kind of attitude. Yeah, well, really quick, I want to follow up on that. First of all, David Harbour is hilarious, so that's going to be a great one to watch. But 
Do you ever have people flat out tell you, like, my PR person told me to do this or something, so they don't want to do it, they aren't particularly easygoing, and they haven't watched, and you're like, okay, this now what do I do with this? Oh, nobody has explicitly said that to me, but sometimes just on a body language feel, I, I, right. I sense that that might be the case, you know? <laughs> We're talking to Sean Evans, host of Hot Ones. Uh, Sean, so you built this thing to the ground up, which I think is always interesting when you started from a YouTube channel and now you're sort of everywhere. Has there been one guest that was really your holy cow moment where you sat there as a host and thought, man, I have made it. This show has made it. Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess to put uh, kind of a sports analogy on the uh, ESPN radio show, there are certain guests, there's certain times that I think of them as kind of like playoff games. You know, you wake up with like a little bit of different, a little bit of a different energy, a little bit of a different energy on set. Um, and I think a good example of that would be the Gordon Ramsay episode who was our most requested guest from the second we published our first episode in a way that almost made us made it hard for us to do the show. You know, every time I'd put up a picture on Instagram or something, it would just be a million comments. When are you going to get Gordon Ramsay on the show? Or I'd come home for Thanksgiving, and I've got my aunt asking me, when is Gordon Ramsay going to be on the show? Or you're just walking through the airport, and people are yelling at you, like, when's Gordon Ramsay getting on the show? So he was kind of a white whale that, you know, once he was in the seat, I felt like there was a, a pressure that was released. You know, like it felt like the weight of the world was off my shoulders a little bit. But as I'm, I'm, I'm sure you guys know, you know, the second you catch one white whale, and fans are just clamoring for the next one. So it's an endless cycle. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Sean Evans from Hot Ones. I actually had someone say the other day that my podcast reminded them of you because it sounded like I was just good friends with the person. That's something people always talk about is sort of your rapport, your back and forth and your ability to kind of let people get comfortable despite it perhaps being a bit literally uncomfortable. I wonder in that moment, are there revelations or are there admissions during the interview that you're kind of surprised that one of your guests might have said, but it probably came about due to the, the weakness in their souls caused by the hot sauce? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, you know, the sauce can in a way be disarming because you kind of forget – the, the, you, you forget about the formality of the interview right. when you're doing something <laughs> like that. You know, you get kind of distracted and kind of lose sight of the fact that, yeah, you're surrounded by four cameras and there's a crew in the room. And, you know, like all of those things that can be kind of, you know, uh, that can hamstring an, an interview a little bit. You, you, I think you get lost in the sauce, so to speak, once you're eating those wings. But <laughs> I think on an interview level, um, I think all interviews or most interviews – whether or not they sink or, or, or swim or it's kind of dependent on the generosity of the person that you're interviewing, the generosity of the guest. So I think in, in asking thoughtful questions or trying to be career spanning or creating an interview that shows that, you know, we're trying to meet them halfway, even though we have this ridiculous uh, premise and all these hoops that you have to jump through and sauces that you have to eat and the time that it takes and the way that it ruins your day. I think more so like those are the things that'll make, um, somebody who you're talking to be a little bit more generous in how much they reveal or be a little bit more insightful or thoughtful in the way that you respond. Uh, I think that all comes from meeting them halfway on the questions. We're talking to Sean Evans. You can check out Hot Ones. Obviously, huge hit show for Sean. But, you know, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach here, Sean. I'm going to try and stir things up uh, because you uh -oh. are a notorious White Sox fan and Sarah mm. uh, owns more Cubs gear than anybody in history. So <laughs> if you would like to do any trash talking here within, you know, Chicago baseball, the floor, my friend, is yours. Well, I, it's to Sarah, I would say, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm weary of trash talk because – 
listen, I'm a, I'm a White Sox fan. I'm a Chicago Bears fan. I'm an Illinois fan. Okay. The last 10, 15 years, Bulls fan, last 10, 15 years, like before, you know, now my teams are treating me pretty good. But before that, I had like a decade where, you know, just to... <laughs> Just to do the uh, the escapism of watching sports, I'd have to pick alternate teams because everybody I was, everybody I root for was just out of it within the first month of the season. So to Sarah, I would say you know stick with it. I know your pain, uh, but it does feel good at long last because I you know I was born in the Northwest suburbs. All of my friends are Cubs fans. I just grew up around Cubs fans, and it was uh, you know like during the World Series, the group chat so obnoxious. It's nice that it's just cricket. It is just yeah. such yeah, cricket. Yeah, you guys are doing uh, quite well. Side. I do appreciate that you just and, admitted you were wrong though for not being a fan of like you know the Cubs and the Blackhawks and the winning teams <laughs> that you were going to ride with the teams that were struggling. Unfortunately, I share a bunch of those struggling teams with you in the fandom. Um, and I'm I'm uh, happy for White Sox fans, the ones who are nice. I'm happy for the nice White Sox fans <laughs> that their team is doing well. Everyone else can kick rocks. Yeah, but it's been – I am so happy with this White Sox team. It's It's been such a – and, like, the Illinois basketball season we just had, minus the tournament, you know, like – and then, you know, draft, drafting Justin Fields for the Bears. I feel like mm-hmm. all of my teams are starting to turn a corner at uh, just the right time. So it's been amazing. I mean, do Illinois football fans really talk that much trash? Like, is there much? They really trash? No, I mean, <laughs> basketball school for sure. But, you know, I, even with them, you know, you get you have Brett Bielema now uh, coaching the team. Uh, you know, it seems like they've picked up some recruits and, and kind of, you know, gone from like the, the last place team, in the Big Ten when it comes to recruiting to a little bit more middle of the pack. So who knows? Just like some confidence on the Illinois yeah, football side of nice. things would make me feel good. Sometimes we just have to aim for competence. Sean Evans of Hot Ones is with us here on Spain and Fitz. All right, I have three speed round questions for you. Do you make people sign waivers? It, well, I, yeah, like so when we first started, we had no idea what we were doing. It was seriously just me and my friend Chris with just this dumb idea and just making a show around it. So we had no paperwork early on. Uh, but over the years, we've uh, professionalized quite a bit. So uh, I'm not too I'm not too locked into what the lawyers write up, but I do know that there's some paperwork that gets it signed is pretty beforehand. necessary. Yeah, we have we have some old friends, uh, the Levitard show. They they experimented with some peppers lately, recently, and it didn't work out well for some of the guests. And they realized after the fact that they probably should have uh, looked into the worst case scenario for what your body does, uh, and they did not do that. Uh, how often do fans try to buy you hot sauce, wings, other spicy things when you're out in public? Oh my gosh. So I, you know, like a uh, hot sauce is something that just gets sent to me constantly or if you go to the office, just boxes of hot sauce. I just, there's seriously a hot sauce table. I just put <laughs> boxes of hot sauce on or people are like, how, where can I send you this hot sauce or this or that? Or, you know, people think I have some encyclopedic knowledge of wings, you know, I have friends that are like, Hey, I'm visiting Seattle. Where's the best place to get wings? <laughs> like, dude, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just have it on this show. But then too, it's like, when you go to a restaurant or something and if, if they recognize you in the back of house, then it's like, you know, they'll bring out wings, bring out wings. Like it's just a thing that's constantly um, around me. So, uh, you know, I appreciate it. It's love. But when I'm off the clock, the last thing I want to eat is a chicken wing. I bet. Okay. Last one quickly. Uh, what's like the worst reaction someone's had on the show? 
Oh, I mean, the the worst thing that you can do is is your eyes. Touch your eyes because oh. it's such a natural thing that you can do. You get sweat on the brow or whatever, and people always and, – and hot sauce will get, kind of get – like if you hooked me up to a black light at the end of a shoot, it would just light up. You know, hot sauce gets everywhere. <laughs> so people take the knuckle, go over the eye, hit the eye. Like we had an episode of Jack Harlow uh, as the season premiere of this season, and he did that. He was blind for like the last three wings, just sort of, just sort of fighting his way through it. But the eye is the worst thing that you can do. Sean, man, this has been insightful. By the way, Bielema, big boy, you could probably get him to eat some wings with some hot sauce on it. It might be that might be your end to to get in with everybody at Illinois. We appreciate your time, man. Thanks for hanging out with us. Congratulations on all the success. Everybody, be sure to check out Hot Ones out on True TV and also on YouTube. Uh, Sean, we appreciate it, man. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. Go White Sox. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Obviously, all eyes right now are on the NBA Finals, and we're preparing for what could be a championship night in Milwaukee tomorrow night, which brings up the conversation of legacy. And frankly, Sarah, a lot of people have talked about Chris Paul and and what it means for his legacy. But I want to start somewhere else on this because I think there's a real conversation around Giannis, somebody that we've had uh, talks about before and the way he's viewed and seems to be because of his likability and because he stayed with Milwaukee and because of sort of everything that, that comes with Giannis. It feels like he gets so much benefit of the doubt. I'm left to wonder for a two-time MVP that would likely in this scenario be the finals MVP. I mean, it feels like it's a huge legacy opportunity for Giannis, who's already bright, his star's already so bright for it to shine even brighter. I agree. I mean, I think there's a bit of a split there. There's the Giannis, that the kind of casual fan, most of them love because, to your point, the likability, the sort of fairy tale nature of his story coming up in poverty in Greece and the American dream and everything else. There's also those who are pretty critical of a guy who's won an MVP award twice but hasn't been able to translate to postseason sex- success until this year. And those who want to drill down on what he can't do instead of looking bigger picture at what he can. And those people may not be convinced even after this series. They'll probably point to injuries across the board on other teams and say it was a diluted final. Um, To me, I've thought that this was an incredibly fun NBA Finals. I've enjoyed throughout. Plenty are also... You know, saying the exact opposite. And I think it depends on the market you come from and also your opinion of the two main narratives here, which are Giannis and CP3's legacies, right? That's a lot of what the focus is. Uh, I, I do think the people who are watching more intently and perhaps digesting more are seeing a side of Giannis that maybe they haven't before. I think I had Mirren Fader on the show Friday. She's just wrote a new uh, book about Giannis. So that's going to be a great opportunity for people to dig a little deeper into his story, not just surface level. And then some of the post-game pressers, he's talking about... Looking into the past and reflecting on your greatness in previous games is ego. Looking ahead and projecting how well you might fare in the next one is pride. Being in the moment is the only true choice and playing as hard as you can and digesting what's directly in front of you and handling that. I mean, he speaks in a second language, by the way, with an incredible emotional maturity and approach to the game and to sports. And I find it even more endearing than the sort of simplistic view we had of him before. So I think there are some that are getting that side of him now, too. Well, and he uses Tinkle, which makes he uh, which makes he and I besties. Yeah. Uh, th- there, there's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I th- I think part of this also just is about Giannis being very comfortable with who he is. Like there, there's something authentic about the way he presents himself, and even through that process, I think he's sort of figured out some of himself in this series. That's something Eddie Johnson, former NBA player and Sirius XM NBA radio host, uh, talked about with Greeny on Mike Greenberg with Mike Greenberg when he said this. Sometimes people want to see you. Sometimes people want to see you do other things, and you fall prey to it. 
And I thought that was Giannis's problem. But now he's figured it out. He knows that his strength is to dominate in the paint. Uh, and he plays like he's really a center in a, in a small forward-type skilled game. I mean, he can handle the ball and he can do all those things that a, a skilled player can do, but he can't shoot the jumper. And, you know, he's an Akeem Olajuwon, but he's disguised because of what he, how he can run and how slender he is and all of that. If we just viewed him as a player like that, then I don't think people would say much. It's I mean, true. it's a valid point. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this fine line between why don't we appreciate him for what he's good at and stop harping on, on the stuff he's bad at versus, like, there's plenty of players we do that with. We just don't expect that much from them or we don't elevate them to legendary status. So Giannis can do what he does and be considered one of the greats to be one of the all-time greats, to be up there with the unicorns like Kevin Durant. There is an expectation of more. Same goes with Ben Simmons, right? Ben Simmons is a good player, but the expectations for him since the start have been to be great, and he cannot be great with the holes that he has in his game. Um, Giannis clearly can be far greater than Ben Simmons with what he's working with now. If he were to evolve and be able to add those other things to his game, then the conversation gets even bigger of what you can expect from him and what you can demand from him. I think when you talk about that evolution of his game, it's time to remind everybody he's 26, right? Like you look right. at some of the greats that didn't win their first title until they were 28. It's a reminder that there's plenty of time for him to continue to develop. And, I, I, you know, I think that's got to be part of the conversation when we talk about Chris Paul, or when we talk about Giannis, sorry, in general. It has to be about the fact that he's accomplished all of this and he is still so young. And, I, you know, that's part of what I think should be endearing about him. He also did it. His way. I mean, he has chosen to stay in Milwaukee, and Milwaukee took a lot of risk in building everything the right way around him. So for all the, the risk that went into this spot, there is an authentic relationship between Milwaukee and Giannis and, and vice versa mm-hmm. that I think really feeds part of what we look at and seem to love about a player that is still so young and now has, in theory, a decade to continue to build in this dominance. Yeah, it's something I brought up when this finals first started and people were critical of the matchup. I said, listen, you can't complain about super teams and then also be mad when you've got a totally homegrown team in the Bucks and then a mostly homegrown team in the Suns who picked up Chris Paul, not with the idea that it would be taking them to the finals. So uh, enjoy it and enjoy this first look at some of these young guys that are going to be around for a while. Yeah, and this is all going to be an enjoyable process for Giannis as I think his star is only going to continue to shine brighter and brighter again at 26. Uh, one thing we know is that Game 6 will give us all the intrigue tomorrow. We'll keep you updated. But coming up next, it's training camp. That means we need some NFL expertise. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. All right, we're going to talk to Bill Barnwell about his work and his opinions, but we're going to start with the work of others that has Fitz and I feeling pretty down. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. And ESPN senior writer and the host of the Bill Barnwell Show, Bill Barnwell, joins us now on the Goodyear Hotline. I promise we're going to talk about your six against-the-grain NFL predictions and training camps and everything. But a collective group of Jeremy Fowler, Lewis Riddick, Seth Walder, and Field Yates came together to predict the next three seasons for all 32 teams in the NFL. And collectively, that group ruined our day because they've got my (laughs) Chicago Bears 27 with an overall score that's nice at 69.1, but not good. And then the the Raiders at 28. Uh. Can you make us feel better than that? Like, come on. 
That's the bottom of the barrel. Guys, this seems like a personal attack on Stane and Fitz. I don't, I don't know if there's beef with you guys, but this seems very Brutal. pointed. Brutal. Bill, I, you make us I feel mean, better than they did? I mean, there's sure. teams in here that they're just like guessing at like, yeah, they should be better, but there's no reason why to think so. Here is what I'm going to say, and this is no disrespect to the fine, fine people who put together that column. Three years ago, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were 5-11. and 11. Dirk Cutter <laughs> was their head coach. Uh, their quarterback was a combination of Jameis Winston and Ryan Fitzpatrick. Guys like Doug Martin, Jaquiz Rogers, uh, you know, uh, Adam Humphreys were getting meaningful touches for that football team. Things change. You get a couple of good drafts in a row, and most importantly, you find the right quarterback, which, of mm-hmm. course, the Chicago Bears may have in Justin mm-hmm. Fields, mm-hmm. changes things pretty quick. So to me, you know, I, I think it's easy. It's not easy. It's, it, it, you look at the next three years forward, you don't realize maybe how much changes over the course of three years, how one or two things go in your way, like Tom Brady just happening to become a free agent might suddenly change the fortunes of your franchise. Yeah, I just might suddenly accidentally spill my coffee on Field Yates' shoes next time I see him. It feels like the only retribution. <laughs> We're talking to Bill Barnwell, ESPN staff writer. Uh, Bill, you have a great article out uh, with six against-the-grain predictions for 2021. And uh, without giving it all away, because you guys should click on it and read it, I did think there was an interesting note here on the Falcons where you said they won't miss Julio Jones as much as we might think. Why? Because the Falcons can't possibly in any universe, be as unlucky or as screw-up as many game-winning situations as they did a year ago. And I know, yes, these are the Falcons, and we think of the Super Bowl. And I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to make Falcons fans as sad as you guys are about that column. But last (laughs) year, the Falcons lost two games. Two games where they had a win expectancy of 99%. That tells you 99 times out of 100, you're going to win that game. The Falcons lost two of those games last year. That's terrifying uh four games where they had a 90 percent chance of winning six games where they had an 80 percent chance of winning and that's just not in their history you leave the super bowl aside and that granted matters wasn't like they were blowing leads like that on a regular basis over the last few seasons so they lost julio jones that's going to hurt their offense of course it is because julio jones is great but i like a lot of the moves they've made this offseason like the coaching staff they've assembled um, and there's a lot of talent here. Matt Ryan is still a very good NFL quarterback. So to me, a little more luck, frankly. They're not going to get mesmerized by an onside kick probably in 2021 like they did against the Cowboys last year. To me, this is maybe not a great football team, but I think a team that maybe falls in somewhere around 8-9 and nine or 9-8, and eight, which still seems weird to say. I'm still not used to the 17-game schedule. <laughs> no kidding. You just reminded me of it. Bill Barnwell is with us here on Spaded Fits. I always have to click my brain back into whatever sport is returning because there's just really not enough room up there. Uh, you get into the other sports, <laughs> and now I can't believe football is back already. We've got training camps starting up this week. And, you know, Bill, part of the reason I'm, I'm kind of joking about that prediction over the next three years because so much can change, as you pointed out. And also those that content, the, those stories have to be produced while there are still so many question marks. And the biggest one probably of all is Aaron Rodgers. And in your column, you do talk about how you don't think they'll be as dynamic an offense, whether or not he's there. How are you writing stories like this? And are you just going with your gut on the likelihood that he'll be around or gone? Yeah, here's what I'm going to say. And I think everyone's gone through this, including you guys. I'm sure everyone has had a friend 
where they've complained about their workplace. They've complained about their boss or they've complained about their significant other. And you kind of get to that point where you say, okay, well, why don't you leave your job? Why don't you break up with them? And it's like, well, and then you kind of see, okay, they're not actually really going to follow through on this. That's what it kind of feels like to be with Aaron Rodgers. Every chance he's had an opportunity to kind of come out publicly and say, oh, actually, yes, I'm done. I'm moving on. Whether it was on SportsCenter with Kenny Maine, whether it was at the Kentucky Derby, whether it was when he was golfing, he hasn't. He's always passed up those opportunities. So to me, that makes me think he's going to be there with the Packers in 2021. But even if he's still there, the Packers last year, you look at what they did, how they improved last year. Of course, Aaron Rodgers was phenomenal. But the one thing they did that really stood out more than anything else in years past, they were incredible in the red zone. I'm sure as a Bears fan, you had to watch them score quite a bit in the red zone. Sarah, 80% of the time last year, when they got in the red zone, they scored touchdowns. Now, we don't have data going back through the history of the NFL, but as far back as we can go, that's the best red zone offense we have seen. And as good as the Packers are, being the best in league history, possibly, it's tough to pull that off year after year. So even if Aaron Rodgers comes back, Offense is still going to be good. Not like they're going to suddenly be terrible, but hard to be that efficient year after year in Lorenzo. We're talking to Bill Barnwell, uh, the Bill Barnwell Show podcast you can check out. He's also ESPN senior writer, has a great article out on ESPN.com uh, pointing out some of the trends that uh, you might be surprised by uh, coming into this uh, season, some against-the-grain predictions. Mm-hmm. But, Bill, I guess when I look at the data, and for you as somebody that is so into analytics and, and figuring out what the numbers mean, when you look at last season and how strange it was from the preparation to the off season to the practices to the limitations, how difficult is it to take any of that de- data and then extrapolate something that moves into this season out of it? Totally valid question. And I'll tell you what, last year, the numbers meant less than ever before. Like all the trends you might see from year to year that usually are pretty predictive, they weren't as predictive last year. And so I think that's sort of a big question mark because you think about a team like the Browns. Well, the Browns, all the numbers say the Browns are going to take a step backwards this year. I mean, they were a team that even though they were 11-5 and last year, they got outscored. And you go through history, go through the last 50 years of football, like 90% of the time, the team has a winning record, but they get outscored they're going to decline the following year. But think about it. The Browns were a team where they hired a new coach in Kevin Stefanski, brought in some new personnel. They weren't practicing until training camp. They were installing an offense on Zoom for most of the year. We've all been on Zoom calls and know how difficult it is to pay attention on a Zoom call. Imagine if that's your actual job on a day-to-day basis and you have to install an entire NFL offense and defense without actually stepping onto the football field. So for them to come out and play as well as they did as the season went on, I think that tells you, hey, you might want to throw out the first three or four weeks of the year because they were still kind of getting adjusted to that offense and to that defense. Now, we won't know until we really see them play next year or play play this year, but I absolutely think that the numbers, which, again, I'm a nerd. I'm going to bring numbers in every time I can. I think they mean less in 2020 than they would during a typical season. Bill Barnwell is with us here on Spain and Fitz. You can listen to the Bill Barnwell Show podcast. You can also catch all of his work on .com, ESPN Senior Writer. You mentioned being a nerd, and so I want to get a little inside baseball here and ask, you know, you have this lengthy offseason where you don't have to maybe do quite as much in terms of content as many radio shows. You're still doing the podcast. There's still a lot to do, but it's not the same as when you're in season staying up to, you know, go on Pablo's ESPN Daily at 2 in the morning every Mm -hmm. Sunday night. 
How do you spend your off season in order to keep yourself as knowledgeable as possible and head into the season feeling prepared to understand where all these teams are heading into next season? I mean, part of it is just taking a break. Like, you know, I've watched a bunch of soccer. I've, you know, tried to pick up some new hobbies with very limited success. <laughs> I'm not very good at a lot of things besides watching football, as it turns out. But I think sort of right now is the point where it starts ramping up, where you're looking at, okay, what happened last year? What is that going to mean? What's changed in terms of the personnel? Like, you're talking about it as it goes on. Like, you're talking about free agent signings. You're talking about trades as they happen. But now I think here's the big picture stuff of, okay, well, how does this offense fit? Like, like, is this idea that, you know, like Tennessee, for example, adding Julio Jones is great, but like, what is that offense actually going to look like now that they don't have the same offensive coordinator? Now that Tom Downing is the offensive coordinator, what's it going to look like now that, you know, they do have two superstar wide receivers. Are they actually going to throw the ball more? And how does that impact Derek Henry's performance? Is he going to get the ball as much? Should he get the ball as much? And I think that, you know, you sort of have to take those individual things you learned over the course of the offseason, and I think now is the point where you put them in sort of the big picture and turn it into, here's how, what I understand about this entire offense, or this entire team, or about the league as a whole. And I think that, um, you know, I'm going to feel good about that for about two weeks, and then players are going to get hurt again, <laughs> and then I'm going to forget everything and totally panic and feel like I don't know anything. So the NFL, Standard. you're just on a roller coaster ride. Like, like, yeah. like it's, it's 17 or 18 weeks of just hanging on for dear life and hoping that what you saw last week means anything for the following week. <laughs> Bill, as always, you're brilliant, but don't ever get me started on Todd, Todd Downing. So many memories from his time with the Raiders. All right, Bill, give, bring, bring us some positivity <laughs> next time. That's all I'm at. Like, just come in guns blazing with the both of our teams are going to the playoffs for the next decade, and then we'll all be happy. That's, a, that's, that's what it takes, Bill. We appreciate your time. Thanks for hanging out with us today. <laughs> I'm excited for the Bears-Raiders Super Bowl. Yeah, oh, see, that's what I'm is. talking about. Now, that's the right I'll attitude. Preview in, in Vegas. Fitz and I will be there. We're going to figure out a way to get paid to go. We're still working on it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's a regular season game. I, I want the Super Bowl, Sarah. <laughs> but we shouldn't take each other on. Be sure to check out Bill's article uh, where he gives you six against the grain NFL predictions for 2021. You can check those out uh, on ESPN.com. We're brought to you by My Computer Career Training for a Better Life. All right, we've asked you how or if you'll be watching the Olympics, given the time change, given COVID, and given everything going on. We'll get you updated on the poll and the news you need to know about the Olympics next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We are continuing to get information about players who have tested positive for COVID, unable to compete or potentially limited. Zach Levine hoping to be out of health safety protocols in time to play. Katie Lou Samuelson out of the women's 3 by 3 basketball tournament. Actually, a player from your Las Vegas Aces is uh, called up to play. So that's exciting for you, at least. you know, we're, we're very sad for Katie Lou Samuelson, but um, uh, I'm forgetting. I'm blanking right now. Jackie Young. Jackie Young is the player who will step up on the women's three and three. Coco Goff is out for tennis. Um, so we keep getting the names and it leads us to wonder, like, how how far will this go? How much more will this happen? Will there be even stricter guidelines? You know, Katie Lou Samuelson said she's fully vaccinated. She took every precaution. But Fitz, the way we're behaving now, and myself included as vaccinated people, is different than how I was behaving pre-vaccination. I still wear a mask in most stores. Um, I do eat indoors at restaurants now, though, and I wasn't doing that before. I see my friends inside. I wasn't doing that before. And I wonder if there just needs to be a renewed vigilance, the likes of which we had before there was any vaccination, in order for people to just be be confident that they'll be able to compete. 
it probably and the, like it's just such a strange uh, one of the hardest things about this entire process i think for a lot of people is every single day the information seems to change a little bit and i know that that drives people crazy but i constantly remind everyone that talks to me about that that you know imagine any other time in history where you were dealing with the first and understand that as we get more data and information is gathered it should change like we should be constantly learning and evolving how we feel about or what we know about these things i should say so i think for a lot of people the the problem for a lot of people is they wrap their head around i got vaccinated that means everything's good we're all vaccinated we're getting there it's going to be fine and now the concept of having to remask and like even the concept of watching the olympics with everybody having six feet apart and no crowds like have we even if, if i go back to a couple of days ago i was flipping through the channels and wwe was on friday and it was the first time they've had a crowd there and i watched for 10 minutes and i thought man it's alarming how much yeah. different it feels like the concept of watching the olympics in silence with masked athletes all over it just it feels yeah, you think haunting. of something like it, swimming where you just yeah. are so used to the roar as they're coming down that final lap. Um, I just want to remind people, and I think people who know this don't need to hear it, and the people who don't aren't listening, but science is not truth. Science is the pursuit of truth. So when it changes an opinion or the information changes, that wasn't a lie. It was just that we learned more. And when we view it that way, we are willing and able to be flexible and agile with the information that we have, understanding what's still unknown and reacting as best we can in the moment to protect against those unknowns. And that's what's been the goal of the scientists and experts the entire time. So when you were washing off your groceries and it turned out it wasn't necessary, they weren't lying to you. They were working with the information that they had. And that's what we continue to do. And it makes it difficult to to watch some of this stuff and wonder if this is going to be a super spreader event. Um, and, and it makes it difficult to try to reconcile the amount of money already, you know, invested in this time and energy from the athletes. And on the one hand, I'm so excited for them that they get this opportunity. On the other, I'm deeply concerned about the long-term ramifications. And we actually asked you guys, one of the options in the poll we put up at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz, we wanted to know about your Olympic viewing habits. One of the options was you're not watching this year because of COVID or corruption. It was the fewest number of you. 9.7% said not watching because of either COVID or corruption at the Olympics. 11.2% said you're not watching, but you never do. It's just not your thing. 38% said watching live. And 41.1% said DVR and primetime wraps. You remember that this is happening in Tokyo. So when you say you're watching live, a lot of the events are 4 a.m., 5 a.m. So good on you if you're doing it, or maybe you live somewhere that allows you to watch it live. I'm DVRing the things I care about the most. I'll watch in the morning when I wake up before I get spoilers. And then, of course, as always, I'll get really into that prime time chunk where they give you the recaps of all the best stuff of the day and play some of the full events in their entirety during that stretch, too. How do you avoid, like, do you just avoid all social media to, to yeah, try I mean, and... Yeah, I mean, like, if I wake up at, like, 7 and I watch the women's soccer from 4 a.m. and I just don't look at any social media or anything. I just get on my Peloton and find like a New Zealand like track to race or something and just watch, watch the game while I'm, while I'm on the bike. No, that makes sense. I just always, I, I fear like the, the primetime wrap ups are so awesome, but at the same time, I feel like a lot of times by the time we get to the primetime wrap ups that they show, I already know what happens. So then I feel less, uh, well, that's why know, I less tape, engaged in it. 
the ones I care the most about live and watch yeah. the full thing without knowing the results because I really want to keep that suspense. And then the prime time is either I don't care as much about the event, but I want to watch it because of the storytelling and the features and everything they're going to tell me about it. Um, or, you know, occasionally it's something that's low level enough that people haven't spoiled it for you because people aren't, you know, screaming about the results on social media the same way. Well, I'm, I also wonder how Peacock will do it in their app. You know, mm-hmm. I've got to feel like they'll have an, a, a mindset on keeping American viewers really happy through the process of it. I yeah, it'll probably be a choice where you can elect to see things in their entirety or like maybe there's like a spoiler alert page or something you have to click through. That would be nice if they right. did that. It's Spain and Fitz here, Spain, Jason Fitz. We're going to keep you up to date on all the Olympic stuff all week long as we get ready for the events to start Wednesday a.m. and then the uh, opening ceremonies on Friday. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.